Now, friends, we are in this prophecy of Ezekiel and have now come to the sixth chapter. And as we've discovered, I trust we have in all of these prophecies, in fact, every book of the Bible, it's not haphazard, it's orderly. And this is a very orderly book that we have before us. Now, Ezekiel has been giving prophecies largely concerning Jerusalem. We find he turns now to the whole land of Israel, beginning at chapter 6. And the judgment now is coming on the entire land. You must remember that he's with the second delegation of those that had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And he was with them by the river Kibar, which was that great canal off of the Euphrates River. And it meant that they were in an agricultural area and were now slaves of the government of Babylon. Now, actually, most of the people were still back in the land. And Jerusalem remained intact. And the land was not devastated. And the false prophets, as we are going to see a little later on, were telling the people, everything's all right. You don't need to worry. Jerusalem won't be destroyed. God couldn't afford to let Jerusalem be destroyed. He needs us. And we're his people, his chosen people. We'll be going back shortly. All that time, Jeremiah said, you're going to be in captivity 70 years. Now, they had paid no attention to Jeremiah. They were listening to the false prophets because they sounded better. And they were giving out a message that was very optimistic. And today, we find that to be true. I found that true as a pastor when I preached a series of messages many years ago now on the judgments of God here in the prophets. I had a very prominent man. He withdrew from the church. And he says, I go to church to be comforted. And I'm not being comforted. In other words, he would not want to hear the Word of God. And I discovered later that in his business dealings, he didn't need to be comforted. The judgment messages were good for him. And that was the problem. They were digging in where he was. Now, the people in that day didn't want to hear from Jeremiah, and they do not want to hear from Ezekiel. I had a lady that dropped out of the service, and she said to a friend one day that she met on the bus, says, I went there formally, but I don't go there now. And said, why? Well, I go to a certain church, and it's a cult, actually. She said, there were times when Dr. McGee made me feel very bad. And now I go to church and the preacher makes me feel very good. You see, it's a message of how to make friends and influence people and the power of positive thinking. They just feel good about it and it's going to be good. May I say to you, that's not the message of the Word of God. And there's a great principle that's involved. Now, Ezekiel is saying to these captives, you're not going back. In fact, Jerusalem is to be destroyed. That's what he's told him. Now, the land is to be desolate. And that is his message. And he's having to enact them out. We saw last time, while you were thinking he's getting ready to give an advertisement, a TV commercial for 
electric razor company are for some sort of a shaving cream. Because we find him going out on the street, and he takes his barber's knife as sharp as a barber's razor, and he begins to shave himself. Then he divides what he shaves off into three little different pieces, then takes a few of them and wraps them up in his garment. What kind of a fellow is this? You see, people all stopped and looked, and he gave them the message. And the message is that God is going to judge Jerusalem, and the city is going to fall. That was the message. And the last verse, verse 17 of chapter 5 said, So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts, and they shall bereave thee, and pestilence and blood shall pass through thee, and I will bring the sword upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, that's quite severe. Now, chapter 6 actually picks this up. And you have two judgment messages now, and heretofore, he is centered on Jerusalem. Now, he's going to speak on that which concerns all of the land. And you have here, actually, these two judgment messages that follow. The first message is here in chapter 6, and the second message is in chapter 7. Now, it begins in chapter 6, verse 1, "...the word of the Lord came unto me, saying..." Now, in the second message, it begins the same way. "...moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying..." Now, they were blaming Ezekiel, but Ezekiel was saying now to them, "...I'm not telling you what I think, and I'm not telling you what I hope and what I'd like to see come to pass." I'm telling you what God says. That's very important, by the way. Now, the interesting thing is, each one of these messages conclude with, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, God sent the judgment upon them so that they would know that I am the Lord. And that's the purpose, at least one of the purposes of judgment of God that man might know that God is a holy God. And right now, this world needs to know that. We've heard a great deal today about God is love. And friends, that's true, but that's only half of the story. We need now to look on the other side of the coin. God is holy, and God will punish sin. And if you turn in disobedience from him and turn from him and deny him and not accept his salvation, not believe that he loves you and has provided a salvation, there's only one alternative left. That's judgment. And that's important for men to see even today. And the very interesting thing is that today men are trying to excuse themselves. You see, they don't want to recognize that they are sinners, and they will blame God for it. In fact, they attempt to write him off and to bow him out of his universe and excuse him and say that he's not out there. There was several years ago, the very brilliant young Hebrew, he was actually a chaplain at the University of Pittsburgh, and he made several statements. And one of his statements, and I'll give it to you in a moment, 
But it was all based on this premise that the God of the Hebrew Bible is depicted as the faithful protector of his chosen people. Yet at least six million Jews died at the hands of the Nazis. To believe in the God of the covenant today, now this is what this very brilliant young rabbi at the University of Pittsburgh said, according to the preps, that to believe in the God of the covenant today, you must affirm that their creator, that is, of the nation Israel, used Adolf Hitler as the rod of his wrath to send his people to the death camps. And he says, I find myself utterly incapable of believing this. Even the existentialist leap of faith cannot resurrect this dead God after Auschwitz. Now, he speaks here that the death of God is a cultural event. It's undeniable. But this is no reason to dance at the funeral. In other words, wistfully and sadly, he comes to the conclusion that there is no God because the God of the covenant, he would protect Israel and would never let anything happen to them. May I say, he never takes in consideration, as Ezekiel did, that there might be something wrong with the people, that they have turned their back upon God and have denied him, and that they were given a special privilege, and a privilege creates a responsibility, and they had not measured up to it. Now, you can see today that type of reasoning that is around us today. Now, here, the thing that Ezekiel is saying, God has sent this, that he might confirm to you that he is a holy God, and that it's an awful thing. And Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, with that in mind, that background, listen to what he says here. Verse 2 of chapter 6 of Ezekiel. Son of man, set thy face toward the mountains of Israel, prophesy against them. That is, the entire land now. And say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Now, mountain in Scripture, if it's used figuratively, speaks of government. But you've got to determine whether it's literal. I believe he's speaking now of that land, the good old terra firma, right down where it's dirty, where it's plenty of dirt. Now, will you notice? And say, verse 3 now, Ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the rivers, to the valleys. Behold, I even will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places." What's he saying? Well, in that land, under every kind of a tree, there was a heathen altar, and around that the grossest immorality took place. Now, this is what the heathen did, the Gentiles. But now this nation, God's chosen people, they had given themselves over to this. Now, God says, judgment is coming upon you. He goes on to say, listen to him. He says, verse 4, "...and your altars shall be desolate, your images shall be broken. I'll cast down your slain men before your idols. I'll lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I'll scatter your bones round about your altars." Now, it's too bad that Israel didn't read Ezekiel in Germany. 
And instead of at the beginning turning to a man like Hitler, which the entire nation did, have turned to the living and true God and been acquainted with God's method in dealing with man. You don't trifle with God, my friend. Judgment comes. And if there ever was a proof of it, it's a proof in this nation of ours today trying to bring peace into the world. And have we solved our problems? May I say to you, they continue to mount up. Why? Because, my friend, God judges. Who do you think God is? A senile old man with long whiskers sitting on a cloud today, weeping crocodile tears? He's a holy God. And Ezekiel has seen those wheels within wheels. The energy of God moving forward and the fire and the whirlwind that God does move in judgment upon this earth in which we live. And my friend, it's a better pill. But the doctor gave me some better pills to take. And you know, they helped me. And I'm of the opinion that we need to swallow a better pill. We're dealing with a holy God, whether you like it or not. And God is not wrong, but we are wrong today. You willing to admit it? This nation is not willing to admit it at all. God says, I'm going to judge you. And it's not going to be easy. Now, verse 8. Yet will I leave a remnant, that ye may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations, when ye shall be scattered through the countries. And God had some people who were faithful to him among these people. Not the nation as such went away from God, but among those. And that's true of the church. Liberalism has taken over the bulk of the organized church today. But, oh, there are a lot of God's people left. God takes note of that here. Now he says, And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations to which they shall be carried captives. What are they going to be? A witness for God. Now God says, Because I am broken with their adulterous heart, which hath departed from me. This, by the way, is rather an unfortunate translation. I think the better translation is in the literal, When I shall have broken their whorish heart, which has departed from me. I think if you read it like that, it makes much more sense. And he speaks of that as being that they are playing the harlot. They belong to him. And that's spiritual adultery. And you see, after God removes the true church down here, the church continues on as an organization. And it's called a harlot. That's in the 17th of Revelation. In my book, that's the most frightful chapter there is in the Word of God. It's a terrible picture. Now, God says one of the things that's going to happen is, verse 9 now, the last part, "...they shall loathe themselves for the evil which they've committed in their abominations." That's one result. And the interesting thing is that result is not happening today. You know what it means? More judgment. God does that in the great tribulation period. You would think, well, the people will gnaw their tongues because of the judgment. You think there'd be a great wave of repentance, but there's not, not on that crowd. And in that day, there was. You see, they're still close enough to God that they loathe themselves. Now, I read a letter about a young man. He was brought up in a godly home. He turned his back on it, went out, 
Now, he hates himself for serving the devil. That'll be true of God's people always. And if it doesn't have that effect upon you, you must not have been one of God's people. Now, will you notice verse 10? And they shall know that I'm the Lord. That's said three times in this chapter now. And that'll be one of the results. Now, today, isn't it interesting? The second result has not been accomplished. Instead of recognizing the hand of God, they say, he's not even out there. If he'd been out there, he'd come over and helped us. Oh, my friend, where'd you get that idea? God is judging sin. I wonder why I can't get that over today. I wonder why I can't make that clear today. People rebel against They don't like it. We don't want a God to judge us. Well, my friend, you can make a God after your own likeness if you want to, but the holy God is still out there. And you'd like to say, I wish he'd go away, but he's not going to go away. He's going to continue to judge. He says, and they shall know that I'm the Lord. Now, if you drop down in this chapter, verse 13, then shall ye know that I'm the Lord, when their slain men shall be among their idols round about their altars. Now, I happen to know that the persecution of Hitler drove many wonderful Jews to God. They're a great company of believers today in Europe, by the way, as a result of that. We forget about those, of course, and very little is said about them. I have a wonderful letter from one of them, saved. Her parents expired. They died in those gas chambers. And it was the means of her salvation. Oh, my friend today, to not recognize the hand of God, whether you like it or not. And our God's a holy God. Now, if God didn't spare his own son and let him die when he became sin for us, why in the world do sinners think they're going to escape? God has attempted to make that true. And he says to them here, "...upon every high hill in all the tops of the mountains and under every green tree and under every thick oak, the place where they did offer sweet savor to all their idols." God spells it out. This is the reason he's judging them in the land. And friends, the judgment of God is still upon that land. I just don't buy the viewpoint of these people who go to Israel. And I've been over there now with three different groups. And I want to say they become ecstatic. That is some people. Oh, isn't this the land of milk and honey? Don't kid yourself. It's not the land of milk and honey today at all. The judgment of God is still on that land, and there's no turning to him today. Now he says, So will I stretch out my hand upon them and make the land desolate, yea, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla. Well, I don't know how the wilderness toward Dibla lives, but I know how it is right now from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I'm not interested in buying real estate there. And if it wasn't for the protection, I think Israel would be willing to turn it back to the Arabs and let them have it. But it makes a tremendous buffer of protection for them, and I personally don't blame them for not turning it over to them. This little nation must have protection. It's survival for them. Now he says, "...in all their habitations, and they shall know that I am the Lord." This is tremendous. Now, friends, we're coming to the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel. 
the judgments now are not confined to just Jerusalem. Up through chapter 5, Jerusalem was in view. Beginning at chapter 6, the whole land was in view. And there are two messages that are given here. And both message open with, "...the word of the Lord came unto me." And he's passing on what God has to say. We saw that in chapter 6. Now, the second message is here in chapter 7. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying... Now, what you have here is a little different than the other one. Before, it was that judgment was coming upon the land, and naturally upon the people of the land, because they were involved, and the land of Israel and the nation Israel are always considered together in the Word of God. Now, another element has been added, and it is expressed in verse 12. The time is come. This is the prophecy now of the final destruction of the land and Jerusalem, and that they are going now into captivity. The final deportation will take place and the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now, this is in marvelous poetry, and I would like to read to you a translation by the late Dr. A.C. Gabeline, and this is quite literal, and it's in poetic form, and will you listen to it and follow along in your Bible? I'm reading now, "...the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying..." Thou son of man, thus saith Jehovah unto the land of Israel, an end cometh, the end upon the four corners of the land. Now cometh the end upon thee, and I will send mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways, and I will bring upon thee all thine abominations. Now you'll notice God says, I'm going to judge you according to your ways. In other words, the punishment will fit the crime. And the question arises, how serious is it to be a professed witness for God, a man of God, and to be a phony or to depart from it? How serious is it today to be a church member and not be saved? That's bringing it right down where the rubber meets the road, where you and I live. May I say this to you? And I've said this many times to my congregation in the churches I serve. I would rather be a hottentot in the darkest corner of Africa bowing down to a totem pole than to be a church member sitting in a pew and professing to be a Christian and not even know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. May I say to you, I'm not going to argue with you what God will do with the hottentot. I think the Lord got some plans, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about that church member, because that's what Ezekiel's talking about would correspond in his day. And that is, he doesn't have a chance at all, and his responsibility is great because he's heard the Word of God, and he's turned his back upon it. And I'd say to you, if you're rejecting Christ and the Word of God, I wouldn't listen to this broadcast if I were you. 
That's a terrible thing for me to say. But I'll be honest with you. The more you hear and the more you listen to it, the more your responsibility is going to be before God. I can assure you that. Now, will you notice? He says here, and I'm reading again now, "...and I will bring upon thee all thine abominations. Mine eyes shall not spare thee, neither will I have pity." Because I will bring thy ways upon thee, and thine abomination shall be in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am Jehovah. Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, an evil, and only evil, behold, it cometh. An end is come, the end is come, it awaketh against thee, behold, it cometh, O inhabitant of the land. Thy doom is come upon thee. The set time is come, the day is near, the day of tumult, and not the joyous shouting upon the mountains. Now will I soon pour out my fury upon thee, and accomplish mine anger against thee. I will judge thee according to thy ways, and will bring upon thee all thine abominations. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I pity. According to thy ways will I render unto thee and thine abomination shall be in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I'm Jehovah who smiteth. Now, I say to you, that's a tremendous passage of Scripture. And I dare say that very few deal with this section of the Word of God at all. This is totally a blank to multitudes of church members. Somebody it's going to say, well, now that belongs way back in the Old Testament, and that's different. Well, my friends, this language is tame compared to the book of Revelation. And then read what the Lord Jesus said about the religious rulers in his day in Matthew 23, and in other places for that matter. May I say to you there, Ezekiel is a sissy compared to those statements, and they're in the New Testament. And then, my friend, as we suggested last time, this brilliant young rabbi, he wants to dismiss the holy God altogether. Why? Because he can't reconcile it with the fact of what happened to five million Jews. Now, I'm not going into any detail about that, but I want to say this. That ought to be a warning today to the church of God. Will God judge? My friend, the interesting thing is, he will. No wonder Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. This business of playing church today and making it a sort of a cheap sort of thing, our allegiance, our dedication, all of that sort of thing, not a full commitment to Jesus Christ today. That's the tragedy of this moment. It's not that we don't have enough church members and Christians. The problem is we got too many that are not genuine. That's the thing that's hurting. It was a brother, that great preacher in New York City years ago, that made the statement. He says, one cold church member hurts the cause of Christ more than 20 blatant, blaspheming atheists. I agree with that. That's exactly what Ezekiel has been saying. And this passage of Scripture is tremendous. Now, I only read nine verses there. May I risk reading some more? Because this is not popular, but I'm going to read just a few more verses here. Behold the day, behold it cometh, thy doom advanceth. The rod hath blossomed, pride hath budded, 
Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, yea, none of their multitude, nor their wealth, neither shall there be eminency among them. The time is come, the day draweth near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. For the seller shall not return to that which is sold, even though he were yet amongst the living. In the vision touching the whole multitude thereof it shall be revoked, and none shall through his iniquity assure his life. They have blown the trumpet, made all ready, but none goeth to battle. For my wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. By the way, the thing that characterized these people were, they were a bunch of protesters. They wouldn't go to war. They were a bunch of pacifists. They ran off to Canada in that day. They refused to stand for that which was right, my friend. May I say to you, the judgment came. The enemy came in, and the enemy didn't have any of those silly notions about pacifism. As we said before, as G.K. Chesterton said, this is the age of pacifism, but it's not the age of peace. Men today, they are weary of war, sure, but long as there is iniquity in the human heart, God has said, there's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. We saw that three times in Isaiah. Now, let me read again here. And none shall through his iniquity assure his life. And I drop even farther down now, and I'm going all the way down to verse 19. They shall cast their silver in the streets, and their gold shall be as an unclean thing. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of Jehovah's wrath. Now, that's an interesting statement. We have felt that the almighty dollar, and we've spent billions of them throughout the world to get peace, and we haven't done a very good job at it, but we sure spent a lot of money. And it would seem that the American dollar is not the solution to every problem of life. It's very comfortable to have a few of them, I guess, but it won't solve all the problems of life. And God is saying that to these people. You see, they felt like that their wealth that accumulated would protect them, but it did not. They cannot satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowls, because it was the stumbling block of their iniquity and the beauty of their ornaments. They turned it to pride. And the images of their abominations, their detestable things, made they of it. And I will give it to the hands of strangers for a prey, and to the wicked of the earth for a spoil, and they shall profane it, for I will turn my face from them. And they shall defile my secret place, and robbers shall enter into it and profane it. Now, this is tremendous, but if you want to read something, that's even more tremendous is what is ahead. Read Revelation 18 and 19, the destruction of commercial Babylon, a day that when men trusted in big business and the stock market, and they depended on Fifth Avenue, the great flannel boys, to make business good, and the government would assure that everything would be all right. 
but it wasn't all right. It didn't save them. It didn't deliver them at the time they needed deliverance. This is a tremendous passage of Scripture. And I want to begin in this passage, "...form a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city full of violence." What a picture of today. "...therefore will I bring the worst of the nations, and they shall possess their houses." And I heard one man make the statement, "...God wouldn't let Russia destroy America." Where did you get that? May I say to you, God permitted Babylon, a pagan nation, to destroy his people. He permitted it. May I say to you that this idea we can hide back of that kind of a Maginot line is one of the most false positions that anyone can have. Can America come down? Oh, people said, no, we are sending missionaries. We are such nice, lovely people. Well, my friend, you can't walk the streets today. There's violence, there's crime. And my friend, until a nation will become a law-abiding people, God cannot bless them. He says that here. You see, people don't read Ezekiel. They like to read John 14. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love John 14, too. But remember, Ezekiel 7 is in the Bible also. And I don't know where we got the idea that one was a little bit more important than the other to be read. At least give Ezekiel 7 equal time and let him present his case. Now we come to a new section. In chapter 8 here, we have the glory of the Lord appearing again and the complete captivity of Jerusalem and Israel now becoming a historical fact. He's predicting it here, but now it'll become a historical fact. And then we'll see the departure of the glory from the temple. And I want to speak about that when we get to it, because that is a very important part. And we open with that in chapter 8. Here is another now another vision of the glory. Now, the vision transports Ezekiel to Jerusalem. God's glory appears in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, the question arises, was Ezekiel actually transported to Jerusalem? Now, may I give you my viewpoint, because this is an area in which I don't think any of us can be dogmatic. I have read several explanations, and no two, by the way, agree. One is that this is just a vision, and he just saw it there by the river Kibar. I do not accept that. And then there are those that say that he literally went over there and walked around and saw all of this, and I don't accept that. I believe that it's very similar to the experience that Paul had. You remember that he said he was caught up to the third heaven. I think that was the time that he was stoned yonder in Lystra in the Galatian country, left for dead because he was dead. God raised him from the dead. Now, in that period, he was caught up to the third heaven. And I believe that this is the experience. And John, in the fourth chapter of Revelation, he is caught up into heaven. A door is open and a voice says, come up hither. John went up. He was caught up there, I think. John is a picture of the rapture of the church. 
because after you leave the third chapter of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, it's just been church, church, church. And then all of a sudden, no longer is the church mentioned. You see some elders in heaven. Later on, you meet a bride. And that bride of Christ happens to be the church, you see, because it's no longer church when it's caught up to heaven. Why? Because church just means called out body. And when they get to heaven, they're out. They have been raptured. And therefore, they're no longer a church at all. Now, what I believe here is that this man actually was caught up as these other two men were. But I do not think that Jerusalem and Israel was aware that he was there. I think that God caught him up, and you can take it from there. Because my feeling is that this is supernatural. I don't think we're dealing with the natural. I don't propose to use a natural explanation for that which is supernatural. Now, will you notice verse 1, chapter 8? It came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon him. He was just sitting among the elders. It's a pretty doleful crowd there. Now, here again, this man is caught up. Now, will you notice? Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his loins even downward, fire and from his loins even upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. Now, you see, it's part of that vision in the first chapter. Now, we said when we were looking at that, a tremendous vision of the glory of God, that it's the basis of every vision that you have in this book. And personally, I think it's the basis of the book of Revelation. Now, will you note here, he put forth the form of a hand, and he took me by a lock of mine head. Now, you remember that this man shaved himself. He shaved his face and his head, but that was about a year before this, you see. And now it's had a chance to grow out. And God took him by the hair of his head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat and the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Now we're told here that he put forth the form of a hand. You see here, God is a spirit. And he doesn't have a hand like I've got. But when you tell me that the finger work of God is the heavens up there, I understand that. Because I don't see how he made it without a hand. And here, that's given to us in this vision. Verse 3, And he put forth the form of a hand. He took me by the lock of mine head. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven. Now, I believe that he was actually caught up and removed by the Spirit of God to Jerusalem. Now, whether his body went along with him, I'm not going to argue that point. I rather think it did. And that he went there to see why the glory was withdrawing from Jerusalem and why God was going to destroy the city. And what you have here is that withdrawal. And as he's taken to Jerusalem... It's not something new. You'll remember 
Elijah had that experience. You will recall he was caught up. And in 1 Kings 18, 12, we read, It shall come to pass as soon as I'm gone from thee that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And then we are told that the sons of the prophets said to Elisha after Elijah departed, The Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or some valley. And then in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts 8, 39, we read, The Spirit of the Lord also caught away Philip. So this is not something that's unique in the Scripture at all. I think that Philip was removed bodily. I think that is exactly what happened to Elijah. And I think that that's what happened to this man here. And he is taken now to Jerusalem. And we are told here that he was taken and brought in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. Now, this image of jealousy is a very interesting statement. What do you mean by image of jealousy? Well, it's translated way back in Deuteronomy as a graven image. And the idol that Manasseh that we've referred to, that he put in the temple, which was an abomination, and it was a blasphemy. You remember God judged that man for that. That was called an image of jealousy. And I think that is what you have here. That old idol that had been probably pushed in the corner or swept under the rug or stuck under the bed is now pulled out. And in Jerusalem, those that were left there that should have turned to God in repentance, they now are worshiping that idol. Now, somebody that's been a careful student of going through the Bible is going to say to me now, didn't you make the statement back in the historical books that you thought the glory departed during the reign of Manasseh? And now the glory is just now leaving over there, the temple? May I say to you, friends, that I still believe it left during the reign of Manasseh. And I think this is the vision that is being given to this man. And you'll notice you do not have the complete vision of the departure of the glory. Here we see it, and then you'll notice because of the fact that the people of God did not turn back to God, why he lifted up from the temple and then out over the city to the east and waited there. And we'll see again as we go along. And then it will not be until we get actually pretty far along before we see the final departure of the glory. And that will be as far over as chapter 10. In other words, the glory, the visible presence of God was there. And I think that the departure actually took place. I don't think they had any evidence after the reign of Manasseh. But it's given to this man Ezekiel to see that God is merciful. And God was ready, loath to leave, and that he was ready to save those people if they would have turned to him. God is merciful, and God is love, friends. But he's also a righteous God, a just God. 
And God can't permit evil in his universe. He can't permit that which is contrary to him. And therefore, today, God cannot save us by our righteousness or by perfection, because you and I can't present it. And he can't save us by it, because he can't accept anything less. Therefore, God had to provide a redemption for man. And that's the reason man must come that way. Otherwise, you and I have a nature, an old nature, that's in rebellion against God. Now, God's not going to permit that in his universe. He would not be right any more than a policeman should harbor a criminal in his home. That is unheard of. Now, that's not all that was taking place. The temple is defiled. Now, he has shown something else. Verse 5, Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now in the way toward the north. He said he lifted up his eyes, and at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entrance. There it was. No longer worshiping the living and true God, but breaking the first two commandments. And here we find that there was something else that took place. Verse 7, He brought me to the door of the court. When I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Now, I don't see how if he was carried over there in spirit, how in the world he can crawl through a hole? And if he's in spirit, why dig a way through? And how does a spirit dig a hole? I don't know. You'd have to explain that if you don't accept the fact he was taken over there bodily. I believe that was what happened. Now, he goes through that and apparently brought down into a basement, down into a cave. And what does he find down there? Verse 11, and there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And every man here had his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery, for they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Now, you see, they dismiss God. They say he's not watching us. Now, I read to you from a brilliant young rabbi, and he takes the position God is dead. That's another way of saying he's not looking at you, and that we're not responsible to him, and therefore we owe him nothing, and we'll do as we please today. And that's exactly what these people were doing. Now they are worshiping there, apparently this image, and they have become idolaters, and they're doing it in secret. You talk about a secret lodge, they sure had one now in the temple there. Now, not only that was taking place, but something else was happening there also. And let me read down now, verse 13, he said unto me, Turn yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Do you see what they're doing? The women now were engaged in this type of a thing. 
And it was actually an awful thing that they were doing here. Hamas is the Babylonian, Dumuzi. That was the god of spring vegetation. He dies down in the fall and winter. And he goes down to Hades and he revives again with each returning summer. And the worship of this god was practiced by Phoenicia. And they spread it, that cult, around over to Greece. And Tammuz over there became Adonis. And these weeping women celebrated the death of the god. And that means it's fall and everything dies, but it's coming back out in the spring. That was the worship of nature. And that is what we have here. But that's not all. And I passed over this, and I should not have, back in verse 10. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. Now, what were they doing? They are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And that is as low as they could go, because that is man when he has absolutely repudiated the living and true God. He'll turn to this type of thing. And you find that was what they were doing down in the land of Egypt, you remember. They were worshiping down there every kind of beast. And that's the reason the plagues of Egypt were aimed at the different gods of Egypt and most of them animal or bugs and that type of thing. Now, when men sink that low, they can't go any lower. Read the first chapter of Romans. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And they kept going down and they began to worship the creature rather than the creator. That means that Israel now has sunk down to the level of the nations round about them. Now, what does that mean? actually lower than many of the nations round about them. They were no longer a witness for the living and true God. That means he'll destroy the temple. Now, that's not all. The greatest of all the abominations was the worship of the Son. Verse 16 now of chapter 8, "...he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house." And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord. Now, right in the Holy of Holies, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. Now, this is the greatest of all abominations. They can sink no lower than this. Now, that is the thing they were doing. Now God says, Then he said unto me, this is verse 17, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Now, there have been many ways of interpreting that. Jewish commentators of the past say that it speaks of shocking and low, degrading religious rites. And then this matter putting a branch to the nose. You know, when a man puts his hand to the nose, and that's what they were doing to God in that day. He's angry, you see. Now, he says, verse 18, Therefore will I also deal in fury 
mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I'll not hear them. They have now stepped over the line. They can't go any lower. God will now judge. And my friend, God loves you. God will save you if you'll come to him by faith and trust Christ. But my friend, God also judges, and he's a holy God. And he makes no apology for it, and he's righteous. And we can say with Paul, is there unrighteousness with God? No, there's none. God forbid. God's right in everything he does. And if he judges, that's right. If you don't think so, had it ever occurred to you, you may be wrong. <laughs> and it would be quite a thing if this generation today was wrong and God was right. I'll let you in on a secret that they don't know. And we'll just keep this secret to ourselves. And it's this. God is right and this generation is wrong. God will judge sin. Now you have in chapter 9 here, the Shekinah glory prepares to leave the temple. Now I believe from the days of Manasseh there was the coming and going of the Shekinah glory because God is merciful. He doesn't in a petulant mood give up people. God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. Now you have in this chapter here, we read in verse 2, Behold, Six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man with a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a rider's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, that is, the holy place, and these cherub above the mercy seat. That's where the glory was. The glory lifts up, a token of the presence of God that's departing, upon which he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the rider's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the man that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst of it. Mark the man. Now, X will mark the spot where those that want these abominations and are going after them. God said, I will judge them. But that man with the inkhorn speaks of that remnant that God will save in that city in which he did. Now, these six men, I take it here, are angels. I see no other explanation for them. And angels are used in judgment. And they have to do with the judgment of this world. They have to do with the nation Israel. I have nothing to do with the church, by the way. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, not a bunch of angels. The Holy Spirit came. And when the Lord Jesus Christ takes the church out of the world, there'll be no angels there. But when he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom, may I say to you, he'll send forth his angels. Listen to Matthew 13 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend them which do iniquity. And then in Matthew 16:27, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. That's when he comes to the earth. And then Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 says, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you find in the book of Revelation, and that's one evidence the church is gone. When you leave the third chapter, and up to that time, the church has been mentioned. From then on, no mention of the church. Why? It's gone from the earth, and angels take over, and it's judgment down here upon the earth. That is a very significant thing, and that's what we have here. Now, he says again here in verse 9, Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. He's blind, and he can't make it to the earth. That's just the same as saying God is dead. That theory that didn't last very long, it became popular for a little while, but I don't know, it just didn't go over. It's one thing to say, he's just not out there. He doesn't know. But then when you sit down and think that thing through, you realize how absurd it is. My friend, because you haven't seen God, because you have no evidence of him, because you have lived from him today, that's no proof that it does not exist. I have never been to Tokyo, Japan. But I believe there's a city by the name of Tokyo, and it's in Japan. It's a great city. I've never been there. I've never seen it at all, but I believe it's there. But I could act like it's not there. And in my book, I just soon act that way because I don't care about going there at all. I have no desire to. We broadcast over in that area, by the way, and I like to go that direction and that route. But actually, we need to recognize that just because we have had no intimate relation with God doesn't mean that God does not exist. And here they're trying to say he's forsaken the earth. Why? because they've forsaken God. Now, verse 10 of chapter 9 of Ezekiel. And as for me, also mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. And friends, I just well tell you, the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the burning of that temple was frightful. You want to know why God did it? He's telling you here. You don't like it? I'm sorry. But He's running things. And if you are out of step with him, it might be well to get in step with him. By the way, that's the sensible thing to do. I'd be very frank with you. If I saw a lion coming down the street toward me, I wouldn't meet him head on. I'd turn and be going the same direction of the lion and as far ahead of him as I could go. And I want to tell you, you can defy God if you want to. But May I say to you that the Lord is riding triumphantly in his own chariot. God have mercy if you get in his way. The mills of the gods, the Greeks said, grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Now, will you notice? And behold, the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn by his side reported the matter, saying, I've done as thou hast commanded me. Now, there are those that are picked out for judgment. And then there is the remnant that is to be saved, because our God is merciful when men will turn to him. 
And that makes his judgment actually more frightful. We leave off there, begin at chapter 10 next time. Until then, may God bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, we come today to the 10th chapter of Ezekiel. And we are in this section that began with chapter 8, goes through chapter 24, actually. And what we have here, we have a series of visions. And the visions rest largely upon that one in chapter 1, which was the vision of the glory of the Lord. And one that I suppose none of us can probe its full meaning. After all, we are touching on the infinite there. Now, we have seen in chapters 8 and 9 that this man Ezekiel was taken up and brought, I think supernaturally, to the city of Jerusalem to let him be able to see and to go back and report to the major portion of the nation that was already in captivity and were being told by the false prophets that they would return shortly, that everything was fine in Jerusalem. Now, he's going to be able to go back and to tell why God is going to destroy the city or permit Nebuchadnezzar to do it, and why a judgment is coming upon it. And we saw last time that there certainly was sufficient proof for it. God let it be known. And I think it's well for us to see that the fact God judges, that's one of the evidences that we have of the living God today. God does move in the affairs of man. You don't get by with it. And the very fact that you don't get by with it is one of the proofs that God exists. And these wheels within wheels, the energy of God is he's moving in the affairs of man. Now, we are going to see the glory that was above the cherubim or between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And by the way, I and now in the temple, of course, as the temple supplanted the tabernacle, which was nothing more nor less than a tent. At this time, these people had what no other nation has ever had, and they had that which the church does not have today, the visible presence of God. One of the ways that Paul, over in the ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, identifies the nation Israel. He asks the question, who are Israelites? And he gives there about eight different points of identification. And one of them is the glory. These people had the glory. And that is the visible presence of God. The Shekinah glory was there. And that is what Ezekiel saw in that first chapter. Now, we saw last time that the glory began to depart. And now, in this chapter, we're going to see that he continues his departure. The glory of the Lord begins to move out from the temple. We saw last time that he moves up from between the cherubim and hovers over the temple itself. Now, 
chapter 10, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, like the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spoke unto the man clothed with linen, and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherubim, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in in my sight. Now, the fact that he's to scatter these coals from off the altar. You see, that altar... And between the cherubims was where the blood of the sacrifice was taken, put on the mercy seat. Now, these coals speak a judgment. The people have refused the grace of God, the mercy of God, the redemption of God, and he's been gracious unto them. Now, they must bear the judgment. And friends, that's just as simple as that. God sent his son because he loves you, and because he's holy, he had to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And he died on the cross. He is the propitiation. He is the mercy seat for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world as a mercy seat. And you can come to it. But now, if you reject it, then the judgment of God must come upon you because Christ bore your judgment. That's the only way God forgives you. It's not because you're a sweet little boy or you're a nice little Pollyanna glad girl. That's not the reason God saves you. You're a lost sinner. You're in rebellion against him. I don't know why we feel like we're superior people today. The best that we can say is we're saved sinners. I get a letter from a certain man And he doesn't like for me to say I'm a saved sinner. (laughs) He doesn't like that at all. Well, I want to say this. If he's saved, he's a saved sinner. The thing today is we don't like our beginning. We don't like that. Now, judgment is going to come on this city. And this is the city that, in fact, it's the center of the earth. It's the very navel of the earth. That's what God calls it. It'll be the center of the millennial kingdom, and it will be the eternal center for this earth down here. Someone has put it like this, speaking of Jerusalem and that land, and I've said it's the most sensitive piece of real estate on top side of the earth, and it's been put like this. Palestine became the nerve center of the earth in the days of Abraham. Later on, The country became the truth center because of Moses and the prophets. Ultimately, it became the salvation center by the manifestation of Christ. His rejection led to its becoming the storm center as it has continued to be throughout many centuries. The Scriptures predict that it is to be the peace center under the Messianic kingdom and it will be the glory center in a new universe yet to be experienced. Now, you and I are seeing here through the vision of Ezekiel, the departure of the glory. 
from that city, the visible presence of God. But God has an eternal purpose in this city. Now, we are told here, verse 4, and I'm reading that now, "...then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory." Now, as the Shekinah glory that was in the holy place confined there, denoting the approach of these people to God, why, the glory leaves, apparently the holy place between the cherubims, and now hovers over the temple to see if the people will return to God. Now, verse 5, "...and the sound of the cherubims' wings was heard even to the outer court like the voice of the Almighty God when he speaketh. It came to pass that when he had commanded the man clothed with linen, saying, Take fire from between the wheels from between the cherubim. Then he went in and stood beside the wheels. And one cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubim into the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of him that was clothed with linen, who took it and went out. And there appeared in the cherubim the form of a man's hand under their wings. Now again, this hand denotes activity of God in performing certain things. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Fingerwork, actually. This universe is the fingerwork of God. Now, when God redeemed man, why, it was greater than creation. Because Isaiah said, "...who hath believed our report?" And to whom is the bared arm of the Lord revealed? Now, the only way I can understand the work of God is to use a term that I'm acquainted with. I use my fingers to do certain things, my hands to do other tasks, and my arm to do even heavier tasks. Now, the greatest thing God has done is to perform the wonderful redemptive, love displayed at the cross of Christ. That was his bared arm. Now, when God created the universe, he just used his fingers. Or as John Wesley put it, God created the universe and didn't even half try. Now, what we have here is the hand of God moving in judgment. Now, verse 9, "...and when I looked, behold, the four wheels by the cherubim..." One wheel by one cherub, another wheel by another cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like the color of a burl stone. Now, I take it that the wheels were going around, and have you ever watched a wheel when it goes around? There's that flashing light, you know, like a precious stone. And I think these wheels are in ceaseless activity, and it speaks of the fact that God is busy. The Lord Jesus said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. And he's been keeping very busy since he ascended back to heaven because he has to keep us saved. And that's no easy job. Maybe not for you, but this for me. Verse 10, "...and as for their appearance, they four had one likeness as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides. They turned not as they went, but to the place toward which the head looked. They followed it. They turned not as they went." 
Now, God never has to come back, pick up something he forgot. He doesn't have to deviate from one side to the other. He never detours. He goes right forward today for the accomplishment of his purpose in the world. That's the vision that's here. It's a tremendous vision. Now, we're told here, verse 13, "...and as for the wheels, it was cried unto them in my hearing, O wheel!" Speaking to what we think is inanimate. But this is something else we're looking at. "...and every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle." Now, I know that it's highly figurative, and I would not want to press it, but I think you have the four Gospels set before us here. I think that you have in the face of an eagle, you have deity represented. That's the Gospel of John. The face of a lion, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the king in the Gospel of Matthew. And the face of a man, that's the gospel of Luke. Now, the face of a cherub that we have here, cherubim, that leaves Mark. And in Mark, he is the servant. He is the one who shed his blood. The ox is sometimes, it's in the picture, the figure and the vision we have in Revelation. He shed his blood that you and I might live. And the cherubim looked down upon the blood. In other words, He made a mercy seat for us. Now, verse 15, "...and the cherubim were lifted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river of Kibar." Now, that was the first vision in chapter 1. And again, I must repeat that all of this, you see, goes back to chapter 1. Now, verse 18, "...then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house." and stood over the cherubim. Now the glory of the Lord lifts up from the temple. He's leaving now the temple. Verse 19, "...and the cherubim lifted up their wings, mounted up from the earth in my sight." And he saw this as they mounted up, and as he moves out, and as for the likeness of their faces, this is verse 22, "...they were the same faces which I saw by the river of Kibar." their appearances and themselves, they went everyone straight forward. I think this is a vision that sets before us that God will become incarnate. Or as John put it, the Word became flesh.